0: Should we go electric?
1: I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options.
0: So electrified looks different for everyone.
1: Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Uh
0: -uh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero Vision for the future at Toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I
1: think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options.
0: So electrified looks different for everyone.
1: Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified.
0: Learn more about our Beyond Zero Vision for the future at Toyota.com slash Zero.
1: Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm Megan Garber, and I'm joined today by staff writer Sophie Gilbert. Hi, Sophie. Hello. And Spencer Cornhaver. Hi, Spencer. Hi. <laughs> so I heard... That you two wanted to talk about the classic sitcom Frasier, and I just wanted to let you know I'm listening. <laughs> 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 so, yes, let's talk about Frasier. I'm so excited to hear both of your thoughts on the show. Uh, Frasier is a spin-off, It's a farce. It's a stage play set to television. It is very much a product of its time, but I would also say remarkably rewatchable. So what kind of legacy has Frasier and other sitcoms like it left to the era of prestige TV? Are you two fans of Frasier? What's your relationship with the show?
2: I am a Frasier obsessive. (laughs) Um, So when I grew up in England, it was on Channel 4 where it remains, I think it's on at breakfast time every day now. And I I literally watch it whenever it's on. I think it kind of the perfect sitcom. It's eminently rewatchable. The thesis I have at the moment is that I think it's aged really well. As in, there's nothing I watch and cringe at these. I mean, I'm obviously cringing at the characters in the show because of the crazy hijinks mm. they get into. But um, but there's nothing that really seems awkwardly of its time. And so I'm curious what you guys make about the ways in which it's held up.
3: Yeah. I hadn't gone back to Frasier much in adulthood. But I think that this show is baked very deeply in my soul from growing up. And like a lot of kids of, you know, maybe the millennial generation, I feel like my worldview, my, my introduction to the world outside of the home I was being raised in came through NBC sitcoms in particular. <laughs> they gave me, you know, Seinfeld, Friends, Mad About You, Just Shoot Me. I was watching all of these, like, I think as young as like a seven-year-old or something. And, and, and I don't think back on them very often, except for when I'm reminded of, of how much they probably like made me the little wannabe, cosmopolitan smartass that I can sometimes be. <laughs> um, and, and I Never. think that in the Pantheon, for me, Frasier was absolutely the highest. And the way that I know that I liked Fraser the best is because when I think back to when I first got the computer game The Sims, the first thing I did was create the Crane family a little what? Digital. Wow! Frasier, Niles, Martin, Roz, and Daphne. And I assume <laughs> that I, I I acquired a little dog in that game too. So when the idea for us to talk about Fraser came up, I went back and started rewatching. And I really didn't know what to expect. And I feel mixed about how it's held up. I think I would be lying if I said, yeah, it's still not pretty hilarious to me. And, and I absolutely enjoy it. And I can binge in compulsively. You know, and this is a time when I think a lot of people are going back to old sitcoms because we've been locked in our house for so long. And this is a time for Comfort TV. You both have written about this. And yeah, I think you're right, Sophie, that that this is a really, really watchable show. Uh, I don't fully agree that there's nothing to cringe at, but we can get into that.
1: Yeah, let's definitely get into that. Um, But first, let's start with what makes it work so well? What do you think is the appeal of the show? Why does it, to the extent that it does hold up, why does it hold
2: up as entertainment? Well, it's... The sort of classic sitcom model where nothing really changes. You have 22 minutes. It's very tightly structured. You know, at some point, Frasier's snobbery or Niles's snobbery or both of their snobbery is going to cause some kind of complication or confusion. And then there's going to be a lot of drama and some door slamming and, mm-hmm. um, and then everything will eventually get resolved and Frasier will be a little bit perhaps taken down a peg until the next episode when his ego strikes again like i I love the reliability of the format it's very safe it's very predictable it's very reassuring
1: it almost feels like pieces on a chessboard to me like the universes (laughs) are just so constrained right and you have this limited amount of spaces they can exist in you have a limited amount of pieces and they just kind of move around slightly differently in each episode but like like you said it's it's always going to be fundamentally the same for better or for worse (laughs)
3: <laughs> right, It is a classic sitcom in that way, but it's it feels really improbable that it would be this sitcom that would be as big as it got and remain this enduring. It's a show about two total snobs mm-hmm. who are obsessed with the opera. And it's like, that is going to be one of the gangbusters sitcoms of the 90s.
0: I convinced some of my fellow psychiatrists to play a little prank on him. When he thought he was tasting a Chateau Petrus, he was in fact sipping a Forcus Dupre.
2: (laughs) I mean, it is a show about snobby elites, but at the same time, it's not a show that really celebrates snobby elites. And I think that's kind of why it's so accessible, because every time you watch, the characters who are exercising their elite West Coast credentials get absolutely ripped to shreds for their absurdity. And in, so in that sense, I think it's just kind of fun for everyone.
0: There he was, proclaiming the Petrus to be the superior wine, and of course, none of us could contain our laughter. His face must have turned redder than a, a Pichon Longueville. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, it lets them kind of use these really formulaic joke setups and, and sitcom tropes. But there's like a little spice to it with the fact that they're, you know, name dropping Puccini and <laughs> just <laughs> throwing a, an extra adverb into every sentence. It just like makes the jokes a little more unique to the show.
1: I also think it's it's powerful in its way that the butt of the jokes are also the protagonists. You know, when I've been re-watching Seinfeld, for example, or Friends, one of the things that I don't love about those shows is that, you know, the sitcom will always have its sort of constrained, very narrow universe, right? But those sitcoms tend to make the butt of the jokes people who exist outside the universes, right? So it's, you know, the, you've got the core people and then you have, in Seinfeld, you know, Jerry's girlfriend, you have in Friends, all the side characters who sort of cycle in and out of the Friends' lives. Um, and typically those outsiders get the brunt of the jokes, you know, and they, they're they considered expendable and therefore kind of considered the most mockable, which is not a great dynamic, I think, <laughs> over time. But on Frasier, the butt of the jokes almost always, Sophie, like you said, is Frasier and Niles themselves, you know, and, and so it's like making fun of the protagonist. And I think there's something actually kind of lovely about that in its way because the show is sort of always punching up at itself, you know, and so it doesn't have a lot of the uncomfortable dynamics of insiders and outsiders and making the fundamental assumption that some sitcoms do, which is that the outsiders are always the ones who should be mocked.
3: Wait, you don't think that Seinfeld was making fun of George or like making fun of Joey all the time?
1: I do, but I also think that like it reserved the brunt of its humor for the people outside. Like, just or I guess I should say it's it's treating those people just sort of as inconsequential. You know, someone like Manhands, for example, in Seinfeld, right? Like, where it's this woman who like is completely defined by like this one physical feature. All that kind of thing, and and so yeah, well, you're right. Like they, they yes, the characters in Seinfeld are also being made fun of, but I feel like the show reserves kind of its vitriol for the people outside
2: of that core four. When you talk about them being expendable, Megan, it makes me think of George's fiance. <laughs> literally, yeah, it's a punchline for her death, and it was a she, joke. Yeah, I know.
3: Wait, wait, but but Megan, didn't you write about how Frasier? has the ultimate version of this character, Maris?
1: Yes. So that, yes, thank you for bringing that up because yes, I totally did. And I think that's right. I think that like, so every sitcom is going to have to sort of decide like the sort of terms of its own universe. And I think Frasier did try to have it both ways by having both Frazier and Niles, but then also having Maris, who is this character who was never shown kind of like Vera on Cheers.
0: By the way, where's Maris? I haven't seen her all night. She's on your bed. My bed. Yes, she's asleep under the guest's coats. (laughs) She exhausts easily under the pressure to be interesting.
1: Through that character, they were able to displace a lot of their, you know, their mockery onto this character who fundamentally was part of this world but also not part of it. But to me, Maris' character shows that... Fundamentally within the Crane family, the humor is going to be just like teasing these characters that fundamentally are loved
2: by the show. I think you're right about punching up, Megan, because I think if there's a hierarchy of like elite privilege, Maris is probably at the top with her. I, I forget, isn't doesn't she the heir to a, a urinal cake fortune. But she's I think she says business. it's
1: lumber and then they find out it's yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but I mean, she's definitely at the top and she is also the, the figure of most of the fun.
0: If I may
1: ask, why does she take the train instead of flying?
0: She's been afraid to fly since her harrowing incident. Oh dear, did a plane almost crash? No, no, she was
3: bumped from first class. <laughs> The show is satirizing rich people.
2: Well, the tension in the family is around education, right? Like you have these two brothers. Fraser at least went to Harvard and Oxford. I forget which institutions Niles went to, but I'm sure they were fancy. Um, And from their childhood, they seem to have been alien to their father. And and that's, you know, both a point of comedy in the show, but also a point of of deep sadness.
0: Do people ever come up to you after they met me and say, how can that guy be your father? He's nothing like you. Because well. they've been saying that to me about you for the last 40 years.
2: <laughs> I just watched the episode last night where Martin tries to buy Fraser a gift and, he, and they go to Fraser's favorite restaurant, Le Cigar Volant, which he always says just like that Le Cigar Um and in order to get a table, they rave over these absolutely hideous paintings by a, a, a new painter who the maitre d' has discovered. And then Martin buys Frasier one. And then Frasier is stuck in this sort of incredibly uncomfortable position of wanting to please his dad, but having to live with this painting that he absolutely loathes. Anyway, that's sort of York consummate Frasier moral dilemma I, it's a great episode it's the first episode where you see Fraser and Martin cry and they're both sobbing because all Martin wants to do is buy his son something that will make him happy that he will love and he cannot he doesn't know him well enough to do that neither of them really can do it for the other Aww.
3: yeah I mean in the pilot that it's all about the father having to move into Fraser's apartment and there's a lot of real hostility from the father to the sons we all
0: know why I am here your old man can't be left alone for 10 minutes without falling on his ass and phrase, you got stuck with me. Isn't that right? No, no! 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 <laughs> I want you here. They'll give us a chance to get reacquainted. That implies we were acquainted at one point.
3: And that's kind of like a reversal of maybe the more common trope of the son feeling like the father was distant from them. In this case, it's like this father was alienated within his own family by the class mobility that his sons were able to take advantage of. Yeah, it's really interesting reversal in that way to make Martin the soul of the show who feels a little left behind by the world and by his own sons.
1: But then I also think very quickly the show sort of I think, moves past that a little bit, where, I mean, the tensions are always going to be there, but very quickly, the vitriol, I think, fades, and it becomes much more like a classic family sitcom where they're, you know, learning together, they're having hijinks together, but fundamentally, there is a togetherness, you know, and it makes me think about sort of the context, like, this was also the time of the culture wars, right, you know, Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton, and, you know, this idea Mm -hmm. that the way we live our lives and lifestyle itself is a political distinction, you know, is fraught political. And I think part of the the loveliness of Frasier and perhaps also part of the fantasy it's selling is that it's kind of positing this like post-partisan world where like political differences don't matter, you know? And I think to watch that now when there's so much political acrimony, it feels even more
2: like a fantasy. I want to talk about the character of Frasier because I sense maybe, Spencer, that's why you think it hasn't aged as well as it could have. Do we love him? Do we hate him? <laughs> Do we sometimes get troubled by his abiding sleaziness <laughs> and superficiality?
3: <laughs> He's definitely number five on the ranking of favorite main characters on the show, right? Like For me, it'd be like Niles, Daphne, Martin, Roz, and then Fraser. You know, like he, he is the least likable person. But that is, to your point earlier, Megan, like the joke is always on him.
0: Did he say anything? Yeah, well, then. So don't you think it's time you got a
3: haircut? You're starting to look like
0: Bozo. <laughs> you know, I, I know he was only covering, though. No? What do you think? Uh, Probably wouldn't hurt to get a trim. D- no. He's
2: definitely not number five on uh. the list. I just love to watch him. I love Kelsey Grammer as a performer. I love his theatricality. I mean, he 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 just has that very, very extra performance always. And... Is so mannered in a way that I find so delightful to watch. Um, I think I prefer him to Niles. I think Rose oh is my gosh, number really? one, and then and then <laughs> Martin, and then Daphne. I love, but my god, the accent!
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lovely accent. Is that uh,
2: Manchester? Yes. How do you know? As a Brit, I have to just stand here and, and say that that accent is not Manchester. And then the worst is when Daphne's whole family shows up, and like one is Richardie Grant, and her father is Brian Cox again, Logan Roy. From wow. And then uh, all her brothers have like different variations of Cockney accent. And I'm like, where is she supposed to be from anyway? I digress. <laughs> Megan, what do you think of Fraser? <laughs> it's so interesting. I hadn't actually
1: thought about it in those terms, in terms of the rankings. I definitely would put Niles over Fraser in terms of my really? personal rankings. Yeah, Niles I just find
3: so funny.
2: Um, we get it, You stand Niles.
3: <laughs> Except maybe he married Maris, who was worse than Lilith.
2: Yeah, and his lapel game. It's just criminal. <laughs> I mean, his lapels are like five inches wide. I'm <laughs> watching, every time I watch Fraser now, I love this show. I'm just like tortured by Niles' lapels. Like send the man to a modern tailor.
3: He could jump off the space needle <laughs> and glide with those.
2: He could.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, should we talk about the women for a minute, Daphne and Roz, just as their own characters? Because I, I think, I mean, this show to work needs both Daphne and Roz, I think. You know, it just wouldn't work without them. And um, I, what do you guys think of those characters?
3: Well, the thing that makes me cringe is the way they treat Roz. Like, yeah. she's like a giant slut-shaming joke all the time. You know, Ross, maybe it's time to set some limits. Good Lord, how hard can it
0: be to say no just once? Oh, well, look who I'm talking to. <laughs>
3: And she pushes back every single time, but it just, the way they treat this character would absolutely not fly today. But I love her because she is so confident and down to earth, and she cuts through Fraser's bullshit so ably, and often he's like having to storm out of the room because she's just pointed out something completely correct. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I absolutely stand Roz, and I think that they uh, needed to treat her better.
2: That's so interesting. It doesn't bother me. Maybe I'm being inherently problematic here by not being bothered by it, but I think it's because Roz is so forcefully who she is and so unashamed of it. How long can I go
1: on chasing these hunky twenty five year olds that are all looks and no substance? Exactly, Roth. Right.
2: No, I'm serious, I'm asking, how long? Three, four years? <laughs> I think if she sort of were responding with with a shamed reaction, that would be one thing. But I, I think she's she's kind of like your pre-sex in the city Samantha, you know, she loves mm-hmm. sex, she loves dating, she loves men. She's not upset about any of that and why should she be? And I know what you mean, that the show has a kind of shamey tone with her, but I love her so much as a character, and I... I <sighs> I, d- I don't know. It doesn't bother me. What do you think, Megan? I would definitely agree that I,
1: I think the butt of the joke when it comes to the fraser roz dynamic is Fraser more than Roz. Yeah. Like the show, I think, is mocking sort of his narrow-mindedness when it comes to Roz, and the, the show is sort of celebrating Roz.
0: I had a little chat with Tom in the kitchen, and he told me he's interested in pursuing a romantic relationship, mm. but the object of his affections is not Daphne. Damn, that Roz! <laughs> no, 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 It's you. <laughs>
1: Spencer, do you want to talk about the Matchmaker episode?
0: Me? Well, that's impossible. Tom's not gay. He seems to be under that impression.
3: <laughs> when I started re-watching this, I was like, did I like this show because this is clearly about two guys that are at least coded to the world around them as gay? Like, completely. And so, then rewatching, I... First was like, is the show ever going to acknowledge this? And then very quickly, it does. There are a number of episodes where they're mistaken by people around them for uh, being gay. And it just, it it gets to my sort of confusion about like what exact social category is being examined by the show in the the form of these two brothers. Like, to me, they fulfill so many stereotypes kind of joyfully of the, uh, you know, cosmopolitan queer man. But they... Are strenuously, strenuously straight, where they are like largely defined by the kind of lust they have for women around them, uh, their relationships with their wives. Uh, yeah, and so I just like it's this sort of like funny tension that I have always wondered if it was intentional or not, and whether some of the fun or like freshness of the show is really like that these guys are kind of in- unplaceable. It also allows the show to kind of. Dabble in the show is like, I don't think the show is very often homophobic or anything like that. It just is definitely playing around with the fact that we live in a world where, for example, in The Matchmaker, if Frasier strikes up a conversation about men's fashion and the theater with a guy working with him at the radio station, that guy is going to make a certain assumption and it's... On fraser to not realize that that assumption was made
0: what on earth could have made him think that i was interested in him all i did was ask him if he was attached and then we talked about the theater and men's fashions oh my god
2: when i was reading about the history of fraser for this episode i I was reading that one of the creators david lee was gay and also that fraser was originally supposed to be set in colorado did you guys know that no but they changed it to seattle after colorado enacted legislation that basically made it easier to discriminate against people who are gay. So, so origins are founded in favoring equality for everyone. I, 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 that does not,
3: that does not counteract
2: your point, Spencer. I just wanted to, (laughs) I just wanted to throw that in.
3: No. And, and Lee has said that that was the reaction from many gay viewers when the show first came on. Like, aren't these guys gay? Like, like, duh, like they hate their wives and they talk about (laughs) (laughs) theater all the time. And, You know, David Lee is saying, gosh, you guys, you you are stereotyping yourselves by expecting that, Um, which is true. But I think that there's like a way in which the show gets to have its cake and eat it, too, by portraying the stereotype of a certain kind of person and then having that person actually not conform to the identity that stereotype is associated with. And it makes for great fun. So I'm not like mad about it, but it is. (laughs) Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, yeah, as a kid, was I? What was I picking up here, and like, what was actually like interesting about it to me? I'm not sure.
2: Well, David Hyde Pierce didn't come out as gay until after the series. Am I right in thinking that?
3: 2007. Yeah.
2: Wow. Wait, 2007. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, so way after Frasier.
3: Yeah, I mean that was shining through in his character for sure. But yes, David Hyde Pierce, absolute queer icon.
1: (laughs) 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 It is amazing. I mean, just speaking of the legendary. Aspect. I mean, just the acting on this show too. Not to change the subject, but I just it it does occur to me. I mean, the it's so exceptional. David Hyde Pierce is such a talent. Kelsey Grammer is such. I mean, everyone on this show is so 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 good in a way that I think is a little bit rare on sitcoms. Like, usually there's, you know, very kind of uh, honed edges, I guess, to the characters. I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. But, you know, sitcoms aren't typically known for, you know, the immense quality of the acting that they give us. And yet in this show, there's so much specificity in the characters. There's such an ability to do farce and drama at the same time. There are just so many, That just the acting is so, so, so good. And I think that that's, I mean, it's so basic, but that is one of the things that really helps the show feel relevant, at least today, and to just kind of endure that, you know, there's it's, it's just, it's good acting.
3: Right, I mean, yeah. they're not just like delivering punchlines to each other. They will kind of put out a joke and then take a beat, and the, hmm. that beat will all be about the facial expressions, and these actors are so good that um, the facial expressions themselves become another level of the joke.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, they also all, I think... Most of them were classically trained actors, too. I mean, I I talked about Kelsey Grammer earlier, but David Hyde Pierce played Laertes and Hamlet and Bibi Neuwirth obviously as a, as a theatre star I, th- I think part of that dynamic Megan is just coming from the fact that they are all really skilled um, it's not just kind of like a bunch of stand-up comedians doing fun things with their cool friends and like waiting for the laugh track like they really do seem to play off of each other like, like the show always does have that energy where they're sort of really really committing to all the absurdity of all the scenes definitely and the
1: physical comedy too in particular oh. I mean oh. Oh, it's so good. And that's the other thing. I mean, it really, it does feel like you're watching theater, you know, that everything is just at that kind of 110% level of things. And, and you don't always see that in sitcoms, you know, and to see it on a screen feels kind of revelatory, actually. I mean, just everything is big and extra. And I, I really like that about Frazier.
0: Ever since you got here, all I've tried to do is make you comfortable. I don't even know why I bothered. I mean, everybody knows that Martin Crane doesn't like calf skin. He prefers duct tape.
2: I love it. Love Frasier.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I forgot uh, rewatching the show is, yeah, like, how much physical comedy is, is in it. Like, you have episodes like the innkeepers where they buy a fancy restaurant <laughs> and it's just it's like an I love Lucy kind of madcap scenario where the brothers have to take over the kitchen and they're smashing these live eels against tables and the cherries soaked in brandy explode and it's a mess and, and that is the kind of like very classic classic kind of Buster Keaton comedy that I didn't remember was like more fundamental to the show than even perhaps the snooty, high-concept jokes. I'm
0: not being asked to do anything that none of us hasn't done before in our own kitchens and our own home. Now, quick, Niles, kill five eels!
2: (laughs) Okay, I'm going to say that those kinds of Frasier episodes are actually my least favorite because they really stress <laughs> me
3: out. <laughs> they are so stressful, yeah.
2: They are. Well, in yeah. that one, I'm thinking about financial ruin. I'm like, how much money did you put into this <laughs> restaurant? You're going to lose everything. Frasier, you're going to lose your apartment. Oh, my God. But I mean, well, the money is kind of a magical thing on Frasier, isn't it, really? Because he's a part-time psychiatrist and a radio host who has this <laughs> three-bedroom... Manor apartment overlooking the space needle and a BMW or I think he or a Mercedes, I can't remember, but he, he's he's a fancy man. his <laughs> money is endless. he buys endless art. um so yeah maybe maybe I'm sweating. <laughs> sweating his finances (laughs) too much. Also, I mean, one of the things I love
1: about it is sitcoms, you know, kind of one of the fundamental decisions that their creators will have to make is like the level of consequence that characters are going to have to, you know, bear and deal with as they go through their hijinks. So, you know, you have shows like Uh, The Simpsons or 30 Rock, these shows that like are operating almost purely on the level of farce where there are almost no consequences in the world, like, you know, Simpsons people never age and all that kind of stuff. And then you have on the other side, the very special episode idea where characters are always learning something and always changing and always facing consequences. And to me... It seems like Frasier is maybe kind of a 50-50 split between the two, and that's part of what makes it powerful. Like, on the one hand, there are, like, many fires that happen (laughs) throughout these episodes where, like, you know, Fraser's couch will burn, and, you know, the next scene, it's all restored, and it doesn't matter, and, you know— Whatever Frasier and Niles, whatever mistake they make socially, it will be rendered anew in the next episode, that kind of thing. So in one way, there are just no consequences in this world. But in another way, when it comes to the interpersonal relationships, characters are always kind of slightly changing their dynamics with each other. And that feels like a powerful thing to me. Sophie, to your point about just what makes the show
3: feel enduring. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: Just the fact that Frasier was so kind of 50% workplace comedy and 50% family comedy, you know, just that fusion, I think at the time was pretty new and unique. Like most sitcoms that I could think of before then were kind of more one or the other. And just the idea of combining the two feels very I mean, it it feels like it's replicated all the time, you know, in sitcoms now. And it's sort of reflective of how more and more people live their lives, you know, like life for a lot of us is (laughs) workplace and family, you know. And um, so, Fraser kind of felt true to that, I think, in some ways.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's such a good point. I was reading, re- when I was reading about my history of Frasier, mm-hmm. I was reading that originally it was just supposed to be a workplace sitcom, but there was already a sitcom on the air that was about a radio station. So they introduced the family backstory to kind of flesh out the show a bit more and differentiate oh. it. And it, it really is astonishing. Like, I cannot imagine Frasier without Niles and Martin and Daphne. It just wouldn't and that
3: apartment. be the same
2: show. And that yeah, apartment. And that apartment. You know, there's a Lego campaign. If you. Um, can get enough signatures to get lego to you can petition lego to create models of things and i, I have yes signed one to create a lego model of fraser's apartment
3: that's <laughs> such a good that, idea. that is
2: a great idea wow
3: uh, there's um you know they're having those like the friends experiences in new york where you can go and be in uh the friend's apartment that's completely uninteresting to me but i would absolutely go to a fraser one because that place is wild
1: And I think I read somewhere that the furniture is real. So it's a real Eames chair. It's a, you know, they spent like kind of an egregious amount of money uh, making that
2: set as real as it could be. So they burned the couch that was modeled on the one in Coco Chanel's Paris Atelier and then they remade it. (laughs) What are consequences? They don't exist on TV. Yeah. One
1: other question in terms of how this show holds up, I mean, to, just to return to that and, and maybe some of um, the reasons it doesn't hold up. I mean, I think that one of the ways for me and my rewatchings that it very much doesn't is, I mean, it's just such a white show. Um, just like, yeah. I mean, egregiously, almost aggressively white. And I wonder what you guys think of that. Is the show kind of just trying to ignore race or is it trying to sort of interrogate whiteness in a way? Would you have thoughts on that?
2: I don't think it's trying to interrogate yeah. whiteness. I think it's... And I can't defend it. I think it's just that really lamentable thing of... I mean, and Friends also was very much guilty of the same crime And yeah. until they awkwardly inserted, I think, Charlie as a character in maybe season 10. Um, I think it was just a show that, that only had white characters and didn't think there was anything weird about that. Do you know what I mean?
3: I mean, I think it absolutely probably was not setting out to interrogate whiteness, you're right. But... I mean, thinking about it, like, you could certainly make the case that whatever its kind of interest in class and culture and identity were, it ends up kind of being about whiteness. I mean, you have yeah. various strata of white identity here. You have the like working class Republican beer swilling dad, and you have the feet, liberal urban brothers, and you even have, uh, and represented from the motherland. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, not at all to excuse it. I mean, it's 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 not, I don't think it's uh, trying to really comment on anything all that much. I mean, it is a, a bit, of, it's a bit of a show about privilege and obliviousness and not really being uh, engaged with much more than which opera you're going to see that night. Um <laughs> But I think it's more just doing that 90s sitcom thing of being a totally insular fantasy and escape for certain viewers who could watch it and feel no twinges about how the world actually is. And I'm sure that many other viewers try to watch it and were like, this show has nothing to do with reality and is irritating the hell out of me because of its blindness on things like race.
1: Yeah. No, totally. And and that makes me think, too, I mean, are there shows that, that are heirs of Frasier in some way that, you know, are more expansive? That, you know, are there shows that are sitcoms that are that are sort of doing what Frasier did, but in a more sort of contemporary way?
2: I guess the two sitcoms I'm thinking of that I kind of think of as as to Frasier are The Good Place and Parks and Recreation, hmm. um, in that they're kind of workplace comedies... There's a lot of odd coupling of different kinds of characters and miscommunication and mix match and um, they're sweet at their core, I think, but also willing to make brutal fun of people. <laughs> but they also were about um, like they had they both featured diverse casts of characters um, and were better for it, I think. So, it, like. I sort of shudder at the idea of a Frasier that does try to interrogate kind of whiteness from a modern perspective. And I guess these will be questions that the potential reboot in 2022 Mm. can answer for us. And maybe we should all be terrorized at the thought. Um, Are you guys excited for the reboot or are you not excited about it?
1: I think for me at this point whenever I hear the word reboot itself I get a chill down my spine. <laughs> trepidatious about basically 100%. any reboot that comes. I don't know that I've seen any that I that I've like been happy with how they've turned out um and in fact I think for me, for most of the reboots I can think of, they've actually like detracted in my mind from the overall, like my, my overall enthusiasm about the property in general. Like, oh, no. um, I know it's so sad, but that's yeah, I'm kind of down on yeah. reboots right now.
3: I, I would say that yeah, that's generally my line on reboots. But I was poking around the Fraser Reddit page this morning for some reason, um, and people were kind of like writing their visions of what the reboot could be, and it was like yeah. you know, the, like like. Uh, Niles and Daphne are happily married. They have a kid and they're just taking their kid to, uh, they're dropping their kid off for the first day of college and Frazier's there and I'm like, oh, that would be cute. And (laughs) so then you start to be like, oh, I I actually do want to see these characters again and these actors again. But John Mahoney passed away recently and um, certainly it wouldn't be, it would be hard to replicate the magic even with him and without him, I I, I can't really imagine them pulling it off.
2: Yeah. it's it's hard for me personally and maybe I'm outing myself as a horrible elitist liberal at this point but it's hard for me now to think about Kelsey Grammer as Frazier in quite the same way given his kind of own political awakening like <laughs> I think pre sort of when prior to 2014 he was he was one of Hollywood's conservatives for sure but you know a, a kind of fairly standard you know Reaganite George Bush Bush conservative whereas more recently he's sort of had a fairly hard tack to opposing abortion and I think he endorsed Michelle Buckman one year and then Ben Carson in 2016 and it's just I think it's easy for me to watch old episodes and and sort of not have my my appreciation of the show be influenced by Knowing more about its star, but it's sort of—I think it would be harder for me to go into a reboot with that context and still appreciate it as innocently. Does that make any sense?
3: No, it, it totally Definitely. makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah and I that's mean, not
2: to say that you can't watch shows with actors who have certain politics. Like, of course you can, but to me, like, it just—it it just seems to sort of go against a lot of what Fraser stands for.
3: Yeah. I mean, once you have something in your head like that, it's hard to filter out. I mean, it just a, affects the viewing experience. What do you think, yeah. Megan?
2: Yeah, no,
1: I think so too. I think so, and I, I just think that you know, it, it. This idea of sort of rebooting in general, it, it sort of forces you. You know, if part of the appeal of the original Fraser is a kind of insularity, where you know, like. You know, in the Seattle of the 1990s, you had, like, the WTO protests, for example, and you had – I mean, there was a lot of strife that was, in reality, happening around Frazier's world, right? But, like, the logic of the show itself said – cancel all that out. You know, this is a transcendent world <laughs> in some ways. This is a pure yeah. fantasy, you know, but I feel like, you know, and and when you're just sort of going back to an old show, you can sort of meet the show on its terms and say like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to not think about the context. I'm just going to think about what's happening in this apartment, in this coffee shop, in this radio booth, etc. But then once you sort of add on the reboot and sort of factor in the passage of time, it's it's harder to sort of suspend disbelief in that way, right? Because you have to start thinking about how has the world changed since <laughs> Frazier first aired? Mm. You know, what is different? How am I different? How is the world different? You have to remember that John Mahoney has passed away. I mean, there are just all these ways that reality sort of infiltrates uh, the illusion and that's part of why I think I don't like the reboots just in general because you it, you know it just it it does force you to sort of acknowledge reality in a way that sitcoms can let you live in the fantasy.
2: Yeah, yeah that's a really good point Megan. Like 90 sitcoms in so many ways were they are delightful to rewatch because they don't try to engage with issues in the world in any meaningful way whatsoever and I just don't think you could make a show now that didn't do that.
1: Even the, the reboot of Will and Grace like was all about Donald Trump. Like the pilot yeah. episode of that reboot was just literally about Donald Trump, you know? And it just, yeah. it felt very revealing about what reboots, what what they do and what they can't do.
3: Like a true reboot wouldn't have to uh, necessarily engage with our times all that much or uh, be socially relevant in a way that Frasier never tried to be. Like you could have a reboot that um, really did try to create that uh, that bubble like magic of the '90s sitcom, and it's kind of interesting that Hollywood is um, not that interested, or maybe, uh, yeah, th- th- hasn't really tried to do a lot of that with uh, reboot culture of TV properties, um, and maybe they're leaving a lot of money on the table. But like, it also, I, I agree that it would be certainly a, a a controversy generator for them to create a completely insular Frazier in 2022.
2: But how do you make a show, like, set in modern Seattle that doesn't engage with, like, tech culture or the pricing out of people from buying homes because of...
3: I mean, you certainly, like, have a Microsoft joke here pages. and there, but, I mean, it'd be the same way that, that there was a joke here and there uh, in Seinfeld about... God, was there any joke? <laughs> 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 Did they ever mention Bill Clinton? or were like, yeah, I don't know. I But you... These characters, and uh, there are people in our world today who live uh, very a very privileged, um, very insulated lives. So, like, it's it's to me, it's not that far fetched. It's just um, I, I don't, you know, I'm not rooting for a tap and It's just like it's kind of interesting that it's not the kind of show that we can re- imagine being made. But they tweet hashtag Spencer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering which Fraser character would have the worst Twitter account. Oh god, oh well, that's a good god. question.
3: And he'd be like the oh my TikTok. Gosh therapist got I feel like never Daphne's never into never
2: QAnon never <laughs> I
1: mean Eddie's the one so with the TikTok probably I can see Eddie like yeah. dancing and <laughs> being a star
0: <laughs> must this dog stare at me all the time I don't know Eddie must you
1: <laughs> so I figured we would close out this discussion with a little game and I wanted to ask you both if you could give one character from Fraser their own spinoff who would it be
2: Maybe the chair. Yeah. Oh, I love an idea, kind of like the chair getting junked by Fraser after his dad moves out. And the sort of crazy hijinks that the chair goes on. It gets passed from house to house and it gets... Thrown out and then it ends up in a museum because it's actually a masterpiece of, I don't know, Bauhaus design. And Fraser never knew it. Of course, it's not Bauhaus. Please don't yell at me. But you know what I mean. Like I I love. I would do a show about the chair.
1: That's amazing.
2: Maybe it's secretly been full of cocaine or diamonds all this time (laughs) underneath the duct tape, and we just never knew.
3: Yeah, I could see a real like experimental film about the chair. That's a great idea.
2: It's all in black and white. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) No, because you need the color. You need the, like, Oh, that's true. And And the tape to show up. (laughs) It's
0: such an ugly chair. (laughs) We are, after all, talking about a 25-year-old broken-down chair.
3: (laughs) Maybe we should have a Young Gil show, Young Gil Chesterton. I
0: love Um, Gil.
1: Restaurant Beat. And we're back
3: with Restaurant Beat. Yeah, it would be him growing up. I'm thinking of Young Sheldon and what a big hit that is about taking a completely preposterous, pretentious adult and imagining them as a pretentious child. And uh, it seems like a (laughs) winning formula.
2: You could do that with Fraser and Niles, though. I mean, the show occasionally did in home video form. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. I love both of these. Um, So my
1: favorite character throughout the seasons is uh, B.B. Glazer the agent that Fraser sometimes Ooh. works with and I and she's just completely amoral, totally driven by money just voracious in every way and she is simultaneously the worst and the best so I would say <laughs> a spin-off just dedicated to her would be excellent I've done some research and I know you're not represented by anyone How would you feel
2: about signing on with me as a client If your answer is no it won't hurt my feelings
0: Well I really don't think so
2: why uh, <laughs> That is a magnificent idea. She should run Hollywood. She
1: probably does. Maybe she produces the chair movie.
2: And then we have a little crossover. (laughs) No, that wouldn't make enough money for her. Yeah, that's true. That's true. She's like running Netflix by now or something.
3: I just pulled her up on on, uh, fraser.fandom.com. And the write-up says... BB is essentially the series Mephistopheles repeatedly offering <laughs> yes. crazer, all sorts of material advantages if it will compromise ethical standards although her name perhaps leans more towards Basil Bob so Ooh. that's the official line on her being a demon
2: she does smoke a lot too there's always the kind of sulfurous whiff of <laughs> cigarette smoke around her <laughs>
1: I think that is it for our show this week. Thank you both so much for being here. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. Our art is by Charlie Le Mignon and the executive producer of Atlantic Podcast is Claudina Bay. Also, there's something happening this weekend that we thought review listeners would enjoy. The Sundance Film Festival starts this Thursday and The Atlantic will interview some of the filmmakers and actors attending online. The interviewers will be familiar voices. Shirley Lee, Hannah Georges, and David Sims will each be in conversation with great Sundance guests. Folks like Regina Hall, Sigourney Weaver, and many more. To watch, just go to theatlantic.com slash Sundance. All right, I'm Megan Garber. Thanks so much, Sophie. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Spencer.
3: Thank you.